Hey everyone, it's Karen. I'm one of the co-admins at the SLPs of Color. We are an inclusive and intersectional community for SLPs, audiologists, and students. I hope you make time for this special interview. Aya and I had the pleasure of speaking with Ben Munson and Marilyn Fairchild from the University of Minnesota, who will be discussing their department's Justice, Equity, and Anti-Racism Committee. Ben is a professor and chair of the Department of Speech, Language, Hearing Sciences for the University of Minnesota, and Marilyn is a speech-language pathology clinical supervisor. As a heads up, this episode was recorded in September, so there may have been changes in work done with our committee since we last spoke. Alrighty. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you can please introduce yourself, so your name, background, ethnicity, your clinical research uh, interests or clinical interests and how long you've been working at the University of Minnesota. So we can go ahead and start with Ben. Hi, I'm Ben Munson and I use the he, him, his pronouns. I've been working at the University of Minnesota since 2000, which is the year I got my PhD from Ohio State in speech and hearing science. I got my master's in speech pathology, speech language pathology there in 1997. Currently in my job, I am full professor and chair of the department. I'm white, and when I'm asked my gender, I always choose queer if it's an option, and if it's not, I just choose male. Um, my ethnicity is Northern European. So um, my research uh, examines how people learn, convey, and perceive socially meaningful linguistic variation. So how is it that children learn gendered ways of speaking early in life? What does that say about their language learning? particularly if, if children are emulating specific people early in life during language acquisition whose speech conveys their nascent gender identity. And what does that say about language learning um, by kids with speech and language disorders? I'm also interested in how people perceive speech audiovisually when they're listening to and looking at someone who doesn't share their same race, race and ethnicity, focusing specifically on the listeners and how listener biases, expectations, and beliefs shape the way they hear people and their willingness to hear people. Very well said, Ben. <laughs> um, so um, my name is Marilyn Fairchild, and I am a speech-language pathologist and clinical supervisor in speech-language hearing sciences at the U of M. Um, I came to this field via um, teaching English as a second language, so I actually started out in a master's program um, to become a uh, TESOL teacher at the University of Minnesota um, and um, ended up doing a second master's and becoming a speech pathologist. So because of that background, my areas of interest have always been around um, bilingual assessment and intervention, um, difference versus disorder, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I also have worked with a variety of pediatric and adult populations, probably more pediatric than adult, um, although a lot of the English learners that I've worked with have been adults. Um, and then for the last three or four years, I've been providing gender-affirming voice and communication services. And um, that has been uh, just the most wonderful experience for me, uh, adding a new area of practice to my work after having been in the field. Oh, I forgot to tell you that part. Um, I've been at the U off and on since I was a student in the 90s, but I left my clinic position to be just at the U in 2006. Um, so it's so it's been it's been a minute, um, and uh, 
I, I think about four or five years ago, our clinic director mentioned to me that there was somebody on our wait list who was looking for gender affirming voice and communication services. And our first reaction was, oh, well, we don't have anybody here who provides those services. And um, he said to me, well, do you want to learn how? And I couldn't believe that I hadn't thought of that on my own, you know, but I, I so I'm grateful to him for um, pointing me in that direction and 50 some odd uh, continuing ed hours later, uh, I started working with clients in 2017. And um, it's just been, it's just been fabulous. Um, so um, let's see what other I, I've worked, I was on a Cleflip and a pallet team for eight years. I worked in a pediatric outpatient clinic. Um, I've had a small private practice, um, but, um, but my first love is clinical supervision. I love working with my students. I told them all today, my brand new students, I said the most wonderful thing about my job is that I'm working with my future colleagues and I get to know them now uh, and collaborate and learn from them now. Um, so, um, so that's my, my main, um, role in the department. I forgot to say, I use she, her pronouns and, um, I'm white of, uh, mixed European ethnicity. So I'm part of the 92%, which is sort of distressing, but it is what it is. So did I answer all the questions? No, I think you did. Um, I love hearing about the fact that you're, you're originally, um, into, teaching English as a second language. Um, that was a big interest of mine when I was doing my undergrad and I tried to do the, um, we had like a credential that you can uh, take by taking certain classes, but I wasn't able to complete it. But it's so interesting how you went from that to speech pathology. It, it, the, the two fields really complement each other very well. So, and sometimes there are people in, in the respective fields looking at very similar topics. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I can't keep up with the literature in both fields, but, um, but I do try. Uh, so yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's been, um, it's been a nice flow from one to the other. Yeah. It sounds like you both have just stayed a part of U of M the whole time, even throughout your education and then now following through with your professional work well i went to ohio state for my phd and masters and oh then, okay, okay yeah and my undergraduate degree was at the state university of new york at buffalo um and in between my undergraduate and my master's in speech language pathology i um did a few years in a phd program in linguistics at ucla so i have i have lived in california i have lived in southern california and actually I, I would live in California these days if it weren't for the earthquakes. That's the one thing. I was in the middle of the Northridge earthquake and that was enough for me. <laughs> um, but it was actually a very fortunate event. It was a really fortunate event because I thought, you know, I don't want to live in California and constantly be, you know, wondering what's going to come next. I was also very, I was only 20 when I started my PhD program and I just didn't have the intellectual and intellectual and emotional and mental maturity to be, you know, even living 3,000 miles away from home with, you know, in a, in a studio apartment in the middle of Los Angeles, um, much less being in a PhD program that, you know, was really quite cutthroat, to be quite honest. And that earthquake was sort of the prompt I needed to reevaluate what I wanted to do with my life. And, you know, after six months of, you know, literally living with my parents and working as a parking lot attendant, I found speech language pathology and, you know, just by a chance, um, friendship that I had made at UCLA ended up at Ohio State and it just worked out really well. I, 
I went there thinking that I would initially be a, an SLP um, and that I would be very happy with that. And I enjoyed very much the clinical work that I did throughout my master's program. Um, but afterwards, uh, you know, after I finished my master's degree and my master's thesis, they said, well, why don't you stay for a PhD? Everything's going so well. We have funding. Um, you know, just see. And I ended up writing a dissertation that I really loved working on. It was on relationships between vocabulary development and the development of different types of phonological knowledge. Um, and, you know, it just really made a big splash. And I, you know, on a whim applied for professor positions. And when I came up to the University of Minnesota to interview um, February 18th through 20th of 2000, so well over 20 years ago now, um, I really, I kind of clicked with the city and, you know, much to my great surprise, got offered the job. And, you know, since then, it just, um, you know, my, my attitude towards life has always been one of sort of working dutifully. So, you know, if I get a job and a job is put in front of me, I do the best job I can at it. And so just every day I sort of go to work, nose to the grindstone. And, you know, the, the mindset in Minnesota sort of favors that kind of, um, you know, almost sort of stoic eyes forward way of, of approaching life. And I think um, regarding conversations that we're going to have over the rest of this interview, that can be, you know, that can be a plus and a minus. It can lead people to say, but we've always done it this way. And during times of great social and cultural change that we're living in right now, you know, that, that is a disadvantageous mindset. But it was a mindset that, you know, got me tenure and promotion to full professor in, you know, in my sixth year and 12th year respectively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now I feel a sense of duty to stay in the department that made an investment in me when others wouldn't and to do my best as leader of that department um, and, you know, sort of do the best job I can to support the, you know, faculty and clinical educators, folks like Marilyn, our students, past, present, and future, and the community we serve here and, you know, the community that SLPs serve the world over. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a beautiful way of looking at it, of, that you are kind of investing back into the community that you're a part of. Um, I've been seeing a lot of talk of just kind of just that mindset of, you know, sometimes you're in a rough spot and you see kind of hardship around you, hardship in the sense of like racial injustice and things that shouldn't, that are wrong, that shouldn't be happening. And you feel like if I leave, you know, I, I want to leave this because I can't stand being around it. Um, but sometimes it takes that extra mile of investing back into it of like, no, I should stay and fix it. I should stay and create yeah. that change that I'm trying to, um, trying to see. I think for me as a white person who has been in this discipline now for 25, over 25 years, um, you know, part of it is sort of a measure of um, atonement and restorative justice. You know, I've been in this profession for 25 years and, you know, I've, it's, we, we've been 90, 90, percent plus white females during that entire time, including in our own program, which is, if anything, maybe even less diverse than the profession as a whole. And, you know, never said anything other than, oh, I can't believe we're so homogenous. You know, my, my best effort up till, you know, quite recently was just to sort of roll my eyes and say, oh, does it have to be this way? But then do nothing to rectify that. Mm -hmm. And so I think at this stage, it's, it's as much a matter of saying like, you know, this is a profession, you know, this is, this is a system with, this is a broken racist system with, in which I was complicit. And, you know, that, that is not acceptable. And, you know, I, I have work to do to undo that, the hurt that I caused by being a complicit member of that, of that racist structure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember coming into the field from ESL and noticing right away how much more homogeneous it was um, than the field of teaching English as a second language. And I think I've been, you know, talking about it, complaining about it, um, trying to recruit people that I know from diverse backgrounds, um, trying to um, spread the word on, on how to do equitable assessments um, in a field where, you know, there's so much use of standardized testing um, to make sure that people know that there are, are um, issues with using a standardized test for whom the client is not part of the normative sample um, and to also let them know that there are other ways to assess that you know we don't have to just rely on standardized assessments they're helpful tools but um, but they aren't always appropriately used depending on the population and um, and there really are other things that we can do um, as clinicians to um, to advance equity even, you know, when we're working to serve our clients. So um, moving back towards the University of Minnesota. So we reached out to create this call um, to get a better understanding of what the University of Minnesota has been doing. So from what we've seen, the University of Minnesota is one of the first universities that we heard of um, are on, our, on our end that is removing the GRE requirement for graduate admissions. So can you tell us or share a little bit about how U of M was able to achieve that? Was this already in the works prior to this year? Yeah, so discussions about, uh, the college had given us some discretion in this matter and we had had discussions about it as a department ahead of time. And um, people were, there was a lot of consensus around the idea. So um, nothing, nothing conclusive had been decided yet, for example, for this year um, until after the murder of George Floyd. And then we all met and the timing was right. But, but this is where I have to give Ben a little bit of a shout out and say it was under his supportive leadership. So he helped pave the way for us to be able to take the action and put those, those steps into the statement that said, okay, this year we're getting rid of the GRE, so. Yeah, and I think it was, it, you know, in our discussions prior to the Floyd murder, you know, in our discussions about the GRE, there were two things that came up. First and foremost was the fact that it is, it is simply structurally racist. And it's, it's not just structurally racist when you think about it from a psychometric standpoint, because every year they can tweak it a little bit so it looks a little bit less bad. But I think if you look back at the history of the sort of the, the philosophies that undergird that kind of standardized testing, whether it's the GRE or the SAT or what have you, I mean, that was born of racism. That was born of weeding people out at Ellis Island. That was born of, you know, deciding who shouldn't come here and, you know, great, great, great crises in our nation's history. So the very same philosophy that led to the GRE was the philosophy that led Jews to be sent back to Germany to their death prior to World War II. It's not merely that it's racist, it's that it, it has the stench of decades of racism that, that need to be shed. Um, and so we had certainly talked about it in that respect. The other way we talked about it though was simply that it is an insane cost. Um, so, it, you know, it's an amazing cost to have to take the GRE. 
and the costs are even greater and even more um, disproportionate across different um, socioeconomic status levels. And in, indeed, when you look at people who pay thousands of dollars for coaching for it as well. Mm -hmm. And so by removing the GRE, we're first of all freeing up costs during a time when higher education is untenably expensive, unsustainably expensive. And we're saying that, you know, we acknowledge not only is this structurally racist, it doesn't predict anything about people's performance in graduate programs in speech language pathology or as clinicians. So all it is, is when we require the GRE is to pay homage to a broken system. Um, and that's a little bit, you know, that's, that's uh, a bitter pill to swallow only when I look back and think how much I benefited from that. So, you know, I'm, I, I benefited from the fact that I had not hugely high GRE scores, but I had, you know, I had decent GRE scores, decent enough to get into the UCLA PhD program in linguistics in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I benefited from that. Would I have benefited from the kind of holistic admissions that will, that will replace uh, the GRE? I don't know. I hope I would have. But, um, you know, I can see where there would be in some people kind of a trepidation to say, but I studied so hard for the GRE. If I had to do it, don't others have to do it? And the answer is no, it doesn't have to be that way. That's the kind of mindset that keeps us living in the past. Um, yeah, so um, one another thing to point out though that's important is that I, I was not aware of what I'm about to say until um, I was contacted by people after the town hall that SLPs of color organized that I had the, the pri privilege and pleasure to be on. And that is some states require it. New York State requires that, that schools use the GRE for graduate admissions. And I don't know exactly the mechanism for that, whether or not it's that, you know, in order to be accredited um, by the New York State Department of Education, you must have a graduate program that uses the GRE as a benchmark. Mm -hmm. But I felt terribly when I heard that because first of all, how corrupt, like who from educational testing services, how much did they have to pay New York State legislators to get that, uh, you know, requirement passed? But second of all, how awful for for schools in New York State if I'm if indeed I'm I only know the second hand if I'm if indeed I've understood the the law correctly how terrible for schools in New York State that they're essentially forced into this uh, structurally biased enterprise um, that's really sad um, that's a real that's a real miscarriage of justice absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think going back to a point that you made about the fact that you know, the scores that you get from those G from that GRE really don't have anything to do with what you'll do in grad school. Um, just even the, the way that the GRE is set up, the only thing that I can think of possibly that would relate is maybe the writing, but you're also not writing a report under, you know, in an hour with like these specific um, yeah. measurements and stuff like that. Um, and so I think what that creates is that people take the GRE and then unknowingly relate their own worth and their own um you know yeah. smartness to this number that is completely meaningless in the real world it has nothing to do with your ability to be a good clinician and to have that holistic approach towards meeting your clients needs um you know you're not going to be able, you're not going to do calculus with your clients they're not that's not going to matter to them so i think seeing the gre especially in relation to our field is such an important lens to look through of, you know, not only are we being complicit in a racist um, system, but we're also, there's no need for it. Like there's yeah. absolutely no need for it. So, you know, the thing that replaces the GRE and those other kind of structurally broken aspects of graduate education is 
a holistic admission system that forces, and this is something we've develop, developed um, over many, many hours this summer. So, you know, this, is, this has been a big activity that folks interested in racial justice and anti-racism in our department have been working on this summer, is developing a system for admissions that says, here are our values. Here are the traits that we think really um, capture who is going to, to thrive in our department and in our profession. Here are the, here's the population of students we really want to see come into our profession. Let's craft an admissions process that allows people, both applicants themselves and their letter writers, to really talk to us about those particular criteria rather than say, I met this benchmark. You know, I got this score on the GRE. I did this many observation hours. I did, you know, this many um, volunteer hours in labs, right? Sometimes those experiences can be incredibly important formative experiences, but they are because they build in people those kinds of traits that we like to, that, that are on our, our list of essentially desi most desirable traits. Yeah, so it's not just getting rid of something that doesn't predict um, the future, future success, it also forces programs to say, okay, what does predict future success and how can you make that explicit to applicants and how can you come up with a way of systematically and fairly evaluating that across a broad pool of applicants that isn't necessarily going to look like the group of applicants that that would have come if you said that your number one requirement or your number one weight for for graduate admissions was GPA and number two was GRE. I mean, when you get rid of that GRE, I think you telegraph a message that you're looking for a a group of people who isn't necessarily steeped in the the culture of privilege that drives someone to do really well on the GRE. Yeah, so I've actually got two questions to follow up on for that. So the reason why I asked was um, trying to remove the GRE requirement already in the works is because after U of M had posted your response to George Floyd's murder and everything following that, you created this task force. So in response to that, so many other universities are now trying to make that shift and change. And here are the students or the undergraduate students, graduate students, alum that are now petitioning for their previous programs to make this change. So yeah. was it immediate? What was the process for University of Minnesota to get that removed? And my second question is, you'd spoken about what you've been working in the works for over the summer to create this holistic admission process what is that for U of M has that been solidified or what what does it look yeah. like yeah so if you go to our department webpage and you click on graduate program and how to apply we've got it all spelled out there we have we have um, admissions prompts that say very very openly um, please you know tell us about these different traits in yourself so you know these it, you know here are the traits that we have identified as being desirable, important traits for people in our profession and people who are gonna thrive. Um, pick two of these and talk about how they've played out in your life thus far. Um, we also, we used to have an optional essay about people talking about experiences with diverse cultures. Um, now that's mandatory essay as well. Um, and so we've then developed rubrics to sort of figure out how to, how to parse everybody's essays so that we can figure out, you know, what are the cases where people have a really exemplary response to those? Where, what are the cases where people have, a, pure, have a, a perfectly acceptable response? And what are the cases where people appear to be really sort of um, not following the prompts so much as just sort of um, maybe being stuck in, in what they thought four years ago they were going to need to do to apply for graduate school and just saying, you know, paragraph one, I found out about speech language pathology when my grandfather had a stroke. 
Paragraph number two, I have done the following volunteer experiences. Paragraph three, I have done the following lab experiences. Paragraph four, I like your program because of the following end of essay, right? You know, those are, there are still places that, you know, there, there are still places that are gonna value essays like that. There are still programs that will value essays like that. And for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't value that, I mean, everybody is, everybody has inherent worth as a person, but that kind of an essay just isn't telling us what we need to know to figure out whether people are going to be a good match to our program and a good match to our field. You know, if you, if you look at the list of traits here, and of course, um, I should have had that pulled up before we started our interview, but they're the kinds of things that I think the four of us in this room could, you know, we've, we worked on, the four of us in this room could agree are ones that are important for speech language pathologists and for audiologists as well. We have both speech language and audiology. Um, and I, I think we work very hard to really interrogate that list and to sort of look at our, you know, in, interrogate our own intentions with each one of the items to make sure that there wasn't a hidden cultural bias or that there wasn't like a hidden criterion that we were trying to bury in there, right? So if you, you know, if you come up with a lot of terms like strong and resilient, are you really saying to people like, you need to be able to deal with a constant barrage of racial aggression, right? Or something like that. So, you know, one of the things we've learned this summer is, you know, we're done praising people for being strong because, you know, uh, strong is a code word for, you know, you, you sure can take a, a, a lot of abuse. And, you know, that's, we should, be, we should be saying no more abuse, not good for you for being strong. Um, anyway, I feel like I'm kind of running off at the mouth now. Marilyn, do you have uh, anything to, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I was just going to say that I, I have not served on the admissions committee, and, um, but I think that reading the sort of essays that will come from these new prompts, uh, will show a person's ability to engage in critical thinking and analysis in a way that the more traditional type of personal statement essay might not have. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I think, I think that it will be a thought exercise for applicants, um, but hopefully will bring a more um, diverse, in, in, in every sense of the word, um, student body into the field, you know, so that we can. Yeah, so I've pulled up the page and one of our theme areas that people could write on in their application essay is the theme area of advocacy. And the five different um, components of advocacy that we highlight are empathy, working outside of your comfort zone, respect, critical self-evaluation, and commitment to equity and justice. So with that particular arm, you know, somebody could spend, uh, a, you know, uh, half of one of the two required application essays talking about advocacy. And that's the kind of thing that I think is critically not, all of those traits that we just talked about are critically not captured by something like the GRE. You know, it's important to be able to critically self-evaluate. It's important for me to be able to say, yeah, I've been a good teacher uh, for the last 20 years and so much as, you know, the complaints have been minimum and my scores on student evaluations have been good, or at least mostly good most of the time in most courses. But, um, you know, if I can't critically self-evaluate, then I can't cope with the changing times. You know, I can't, um, you know, one of the big things that, um, that I think of, that I've been thinking about a lot with a group of people who are on the town hall that SLPs of color organize, we continue to meet regularly and to and sort of brainstorm and work on different scholarly pieces that we're writing right now. You know, one of the things that I think a lot about is this idea that, you know, what if all of these um, holistic admissions initiatives are successful 
and we get a huge influx of non-white and Latinx people into our profession, our, is our profession really detoxified enough so that those people can thrive? Or, um, or are we bringing them into a, are, are they like canaries in the poison coal mine? Are we just bringing in more canaries to a, a toxic profession? I have to be able to critically self-evaluate my practices so that I'm ready to mentor and support and teach and, and uh, nurture a whole different group of people than the ones I have for the last 20 years and you know, different from me myself. And Ben, I was thinking about how you and I had talked about that the other day. And you know that I've personally recruited some people that are very important to me into this field who are people of color. So I, I'm, I'm really feeling a huge sense of personal responsibility here that we do need to make sure that this field is warm and inclusive and welcoming to everybody so that people stay and so that people thrive and so that they can use their gifts to help their, their clients and their communities. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a big sense of, um, well, if I'm gonna be recruiting, you know, I've been also working on recruiting um, transgender and gender nonconforming folks to the field. I need to make sure that this field is gonna be a safe place for them to work and grow and thrive and live. So um, we can't stop working, we just can't. We have to, you know, we have to make sure that we spread the word and that, um, that we make it happen, you know? So Karen, I, I want to um, sort of make sure that I answered the question that you asked before fully. And, you know, that I think it's fair to say that there are a number of both internal and external factors that made our department particularly ready for an activity like this. You know, the internal factor is some of the legwork was work we were already doing on kind of the more, I might even say more performative things like getting rid of the GRE. But the other thing, um, so that's one of the things that's, that's sort of internal. I think the second thing that's internal is we have people in key leadership positions. So me as chair, um, Liza Feinstock, Dr. Liza Feinstock, our director of graduate studies, our two clinical programs directors, Dr. Sarah Angerman in audiology and Becky Lulai in speech. And then a couple of key influencers in the department, including Marilyn, um, who were ready, who were sort of ready to make a change in the department in lots of different ways, who are ready for the department to sort of break out of, you know, just to sort of to, to turn a corner that, um, you know, we, we had a, we've had a new in investment in faculty in our department from our administration. And it's like, this is something that, our, that we, we've, been, we've been wanting to really transform a department in many ways. Um, we don't have a culture, we have a, a lot of young people in our department, and I think we have a culture that really is eager to be, to do better and to be better, and that, you know, sees, uh, at least in their mind, the, you know, pictures of the, we don't do class pictures of students when they graduate, but if we did, I mean, we would see groups of people that show that we are not doing our part in transforming our profession from the white female um, professional core that started it, right? But then the other thing that happened was a black man was killed in cold blood by the police mere miles away from the building that we're in, Yeah. right? And, and it wasn't the first time that this has happened in our city, right, um, uh, in, in recent years. And, you know, with the, with the prize for justice, and I don't mean prize like, I mean whales for justice, um, you know, we, we all need to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and say, 
you know, when the call to, to duty, you know, did we answer the call to duty, right? When we were called to duty in 2020, did we answer the call to duty or did we claim we had, you know, the equivalent of bone spurs and not answer the call to duty? And the fact is we are not draft dodgers, right? We answered the call to duty. And this is simply a part of saying, you know, there was a, there was a call for justice um, from the, the local community of BIPOC people. Um, we were, you know, we had been making some plans and sort of sitting on our thumbs and our alumni came back at us and said, you have an opportunity to do something different. And the fact of the matter is we kind of had to drop everything and say, it's time to drop everything and make this a huge priority because enough is enough, right? I think for me, one of the transformational moments is when our new university president, Dr. Joan Gable, Joan Gable, actually, she's a lawyer, so I don't think she has the doctor title. Joan Gable um, was lobbied by the head of the Multicultural Student Association, J.L. Karundi. So J.L. Karundi, the head of the Multicultural Student Association, lobbied our president, Joan Gable, to um, essentially divest from the Minneapolis Police Department on campus, to essentially absolutely minimize the presence of the MPD on campus. And Joan Gable agreed, she acceded, and she sent out a message to the university community that was absolutely terse, and it actually, like, it touched my heart in ways I can't say. It was the first time in so long that I'd actually seen what a leader looks like being a leader and doing something that's, like, good leadership. I mean, um, it's, it's been a long time since, I, at least a couple of years, since I've seen strong, positive, decisive leadership. And, you know, that was an inspiration to me to say, like, if the president is setting this precedent to be strong and decisive and bold, then you know nobody can hold it against us if we try and, and take that ball and run with it um, as best we can. And I think that the consequence of that was that the the working group that we have was built in, you know, it was it was built in in emails and at 2 a.m. over the course of a couple of days. It's not like we had a, a constitutional convention and sat down and came up with a big policies and procedures document that was very that very carefully laid out things like who's gonna be on the committee, what will their terms be, what will the charge be? It's more like we got together and said, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a five alarm fire blazing and it's all, all hands are needed to do what we can to put out that fire. And so I think many of the questions that you pose to us for this interview are, you know, I sort of feel a sense of embarrassment when I read them because I think, well, it's all we're 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 refining it as we go along. This was this was forged in the the days of of great social unrest after the Floyd murder, and a lot of it is seat of the pants. And you know, as a result, there are things that we're doing right now that are that are going to there. It will evolve organically, right? It will evolve organically. Well, I mean, I I think Ben to to just. I don't, I think you had, we had a lot of those pieces already in place and we did yeah. have strong support from you and we did have our engaged department team. So we were, we were working in areas of community engagement. And, yes, very true. Um, so yeah, but, the, but this definitely was a catalyst moment. I just, uh, I, I remember, you know how, um, whenever something really big happens, you always for the rest of your life, remember where you yeah. were when, when. Flash bulb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I will always remember that we just happened to be in one of our Friday check-in meetings, I think, when all of this was happening. I think it was probably the Friday after Memorial Day. And, 
and it, there was just no way that we couldn't yeah. not take action. Do you know what I mean? Like it, the, the moment was all literally all around us and, um, and we had to take action, you know? Yeah. And we drafted that statement. I mean, we got that over a couple of days. We, so in that meeting, and I think you're right, it was the Friday after Memorial Day, we were having, you know, ever since COVID began, we've had essentially weekly faculty meetings. Normally we have faculty meetings about every other week um, or every three weeks. And we've been having them every week just so that people can keep track of the ever-changing landscape that is um, COVID and, and institutional responses to it. And we said, all right, if we're gonna have a statement, what are the things that that statement needs to say? And some of it is, we have to say uh, that we as a department have benefited from racism. That has to be one of the things that we say. And I think that's one of the things I'm most grateful for in our statement is that we say, you know, we've, racism isn't just sort of like, oh, be nicer to black people. Racism is white people have all they have because they benefited unfairly over centuries. And it's not just that we've benefited unfairly, it's been at the cost of trauma to BIPOC people. And this, I mean, once you say that and you believe it in your heart, if, if you don't do something about it, it's as evil as evil can be, right? And I think that, you know, when we decided to say that, I think that was kind of like we were, you know, that we, we'd crossed the Rubicon, the die was cast. Um, and, you know, we, we just, then we got together was the next Monday or Tuesday and we're like, we're gonna have a meeting and we're not gonna end until we have a statement we're happy with. And we sat there and we wrote it out. It was like the, the six of us who just, who, 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 who were moved by the spirit, right? The six of us who just, who, who were, were committed to it. And then we sent it around to the entire department. And, you know, every, I think, I don't think a single person in the department didn't respond. And some of them, um, you know, anonymously wrote some really pointed things. And as a result, there were some key pieces of text that were changed. And I think it's a, it's a, in, in all of those cases, it wasn't like we were watering down strong wording. It was cases like where people were saying, uh, do you really need to make this statement? This is just replicating the same kind of um, cluelessness of the past. So I'm thinking of a couple of interactions there. Um, and as a result, we sort of, I think everybody feels, I, I hope that everybody feels like they had a hand in the, the process and that they could speak openly about it and, and contribute to the outcome. And, you know, I say I hope because we, you know, we, we live in a, a, an academic world where power differentials are woven into the very fabric of our institution. And I hope to be the kind of person who never, ever, ever retaliates against people who, who question the status quo. But I can't say that, you know, we're a, 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 an egalitarian department because, you know, we're, there's only so much we can buck the inherently egalitarian. Uh, inegalitarian nature of, of academia and of society, American society. Thank you for sharing all that information. Um, and please don't feel embarrassed about the questions that we came up with. I am, when we were coming up with these questions, we were just trying to have a better understanding of how other universities can erect their own organizations yeah. and task force. But I, I want to give everyone who's listening to this podcast episode or interview episode to have a better understanding that for some universities, a lot of the complexities behind establishing something like this might not be there for them. So it will take a longer time and the changes that alumni will be demanding for, or their students are demanding for, it might not be immediate. And 
it's just not physically possible to make those changes. Um, and I know, especially with the GRE requirement, maybe that won't be able to be enforced until the following academic year. But right now they're trying to make subtle changes or things that can be addressed currently. So we're just really glad to hear that this was the reaction to, to every, everything coming along with it. And these are the changes that you are making and the goals that you're trying to establish and enforce. Yeah. And I think just because I'm, I'm suddenly on the, um, suddenly got a rush of energy in my 11th hour of meetings today, a rush of energy. I'll say just a couple more things along that line, along the lines of, you know, what can, what will happen when there are programs um, whose alumni approach them and the programs are kind of reticent or say, well, what are we supposed to, you know, they're, they're reticent or indifferent. And here, I think this is a this is the case where we really need to look to our national organizations, our accreditors, right? So the people who are credit clinicians and the people who are credit programs and say, what are you doing to decolonize our profession? So, I mean, think of all of the things that the CAA standards mandate. They mandate sorry, interprofessional education. They mandate, you know, all of these different, you know, big nine areas uh, or, you know, their, their equivalent in audiology. And they have a pretty weak um, mandate for cultural cognates, whatever that actually is. Um, Whereas you could say, you know, why isn't there a CAA standard that says, you know, programs must engage in, if, we, if programs can be mandated to engage in interprofessional education, then programs can be uh, mandated to engage in anti-racist education that's grounded in critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's an, I, I would be happy to see that. And, you know, if there's a program that has you know, four faculty members who are working their very hardest to keep the program afloat and say, you know, we can't do much more and, you know, maybe don't have the tools themselves to even know where to start. Once, a, a, if an accreditor says that, that this is something that's mandated, then the professions will organically build ways for programs to meet that accreditation standard, right? There will be curricula in anti-racist uh, anti curricula for audiology and speech language pathology, just like there are curricula for interprofessional education for, you know, audiologists working with occupational therapists and SLPs working with dental hygienists, right? Um, so I think that not stopping at, um, at one's program and thinking about who are the programs beholden to themselves. Um, the other thing I'll say is in a profession that's so overwhelmingly white as ours, I think anti-racism has got to be part of it. You know, we can't say to the couple of thousands of black indigenous and other people of color in our profession that it's on their shoulders to make all of these changes at the same time we can't say to the 93 percent of our profession who are white like me um you know to to suddenly have this knowledge and experience base that they don't have but we can say to white people like me um to work on our racism to be anti-racist to to do the kinds of things that aren't being an ally to people of color, but are, are being, you know, not an antagonist to people of color. Even an unintentional antagonist, right? Because intent and yeah. impact are not the same thing. So people will say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Well, you know. <laughs> Meaning is co-constructed by two people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean you didn't have an impact on this other person. So yeah. even if you didn't mean to, you still did. So. 
and you weren't listening in your pragmatics classes because meaning <laughs> is co-constructed. Right. Um, I think I really appreciate that perspective, especially when you're both talking about this rush towards action that drove you to get that statement out. And I think that, Karen, you brought up really good points. Of some, a lot of the programs don't have that infrastructure. Or um, Ben and Marilyn, you had both mentioned that, you know, if it weren't for the fact that you had been working on parts of that statement earlier before all of this happened. Um, you had the team and the manpower that was willing to, you know, sit down and do the work with you in order to get this out. Um, so I think those are all important factors. And it feels almost like there needs to, the, there's this kind of like this fine balance between demanding action or like, like students wanting, you know, creating, um, task forces, or sorry, not task forces, creating petitions and demanding from their university that this action is met. And universities also kind of meeting them halfway, even if the infrastructure is not there. Sometimes it's just about doing the action anyway. You know, sometimes you just, yeah. it's about that immediate um, effect of showing your students that you're there for them and you are listening to them beyond just saying, I'm here for you and I'm listening to you. That's what you I know? was gonna say. If nothing else, they need to say, I'm listening. I am actively listening because I have my own experience. I don't have your experience. The only way I'm gonna learn anything about your experience is if I talk less and listen more, mm -hmm. you know? So one thing I'll say um, about that, so I think that's, Aya, that's, that's, those are amazing, amazing points. I think you, you, you are both asking, I really love the way this conversation is evolving in the way you're directing it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned over my 25 years of being in this field is that um, I learned this from Joe Richley, one of our colleagues who's now retired, that when you work in a system where bad behavior is punished, you get minimum compliance. And when you work in a system where good behavior is rewarded, you get maximum compliance. And so in this, in this framework, anti-racism is the good behavior that should get rewarded, right? And, you know, being sort of minimally compliant with really toothless diversity requirements, that's, that's a system that you get when there's punishment for bad behavior. And so in so much as we can incentivize people to be anti-racist, I'll say, I've never been happier at my work or more satisfied with my work or more proud of my department, or more proud of my colleagues, or more grateful for the opportunities that I have than I have in the last four months. This is like for me, and Marilyn knows me, and you know, I've had a rough cup. I mean, I had a, I, I, I've had, I've had, a, you can just look me up on the web. I've had, you know, I've had, a, I've had a pretty rough time 2008 to 2014. And, you know, I certainly lost love with my job for, for a number of years there. And like, I, I'm just, I feel a sense of mission and purpose and like a potential that actually I could be doing something that really matters. Not, you know, I could be doing something that really matters, that has bigger impact. And, you know, I hope people out there who are thinking like, oh, do we have to do this? We have our CAA reaccreditation next year. Can't we just focus on our essential functions document? Like, yeah, I suppose you can, but you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing being part of um, a great wave of cultural transformation that has been made possible by 
people like JL Karundi at University of Minnesota, by, by the Black Lives Matter movement, right? They have, they have given us the possibility to throw off the chains of, you know, the, the institutional racism that we have, that, you know, that we have been, <laughs> that we have locked the chains of for most of our lives through our active or passive participation in it. And, you know, I hope people want to be a part of that because it's a, it's a great thing to be a part of. You know, there's, it's, it is not a hardship. It is not a burden. It is not arduous. It's a lot of work, but what isn't? Right. Mm -hmm. um, something that I was, that I hope you can, as two people who are involved in higher education um, and part of the admissions and you kind of, you know, and are part of that intricate world, I was hoping you can shed some light in terms of how possible it is to create this kind of change. Um, I know it's, you know, you, I think I, from a student perspective, because I just recently graduated, a lot of the conversation I hear is, you know, that's nice and I hear you and I think that that's super important, but it's just not possible or it's just going to take forever. It's, you know, there's so much to do. You have to go through this person. It needs to go through this channel. You got to go through the chain of command. And by the time it gets approved and all of these things that on the one hand, I'm sure there's truth too, but because of the lack of transparency in the sense of most students don't know that that's the whole process. So a lot of times it just kind of comes off as a weak excuse. Um, and on the other hand, I also think is, can lead to kind of a cop-out of like, well, I know how long this is gonna take. And I know that, you know, just trying to make one tiny change takes years. Um, so I'll, I feel like I don't wanna put, you know, drain my energy down that road, even though I feel for this student and I want to help them, I also know that it, it's not, it might not be possible for them. So I was hoping you to, if you two could just shed some light on kind of what is the process or how does change come about in higher education? Would you take that one, Marilyn? Well, I, I'm just thinking about what you're saying about what, what I hear, I think, is some um, feelings of being overwhelmed and, and discouraged. Um, I don't know, because I haven't served on admissions and because I'm not in administration at the university, I don't know the exact, um, the procedural channels and all those things that you're talking about. But I do know, I do recognize that sort of feeling of being overwhelmed and discouraged and, um, and, and um, wanting to, you know, kind of do a cost-benefit analysis and, and be realistic about what outcomes might be. Um, and so, so just speaking from my personal experience with, thing, with journeys like this that I've faced in my own life, um, every now and then you have to pause and you, ha you do have to take a personal cost-benefit analysis and figure out um, what's going to work for you or whatever person you're advising in terms of, you know, whether or not to apply and where to apply and, and um, what they can do to strengthen their application and, and so on and so forth. Um, and also encouraging them to take a look to make sure that the, that the places that they're applying to are places that are really going to help them flourish, you know. Um, it's, it takes a lot of patience and um and stamina and self-care and uh, and for me in my case um just kind of stubbornness like i just won't give up you know um sometimes i want to give up and then i have to take a nap um 
or, or, or take a break or, or figure out a new channel. Um, but a couple of years have ago- Have a major orthopedic injury. We've both done that one as a coping yeah, mechanism, right? Totally, totally. And I remember I had a really big running goal a couple of years ago. And, and before it happened, I, I experienced a major orthopedic <laughs> injury and I didn't know if I was gonna be able to complete my goal or not. And, um, and I was stubborn and I said, if I have to lie on my side and roll, then that's what I'll do. Like, I, I, I can't walk away from this opportunity. This is a once in a lifetime. And um, when, when I was trying to get myself ready and I was doing some kind of um, like mental training and that sort of thing, um, I listened to a podcast with Diane Nyad. So um, she's the woman who swam to Cuba from Florida. Um, and she almost died and it took her multiple tries. Um, but at the end of her podcast, she said, um, never, ever give up. And, um, so I kind of internalized that and I must've mentioned it to one of my students because. Oh, you, I remember you telling me about it the day after you listened to it, us having this conversation, like a flashbulb memory for me. And so, so spoiler alert, I did accomplish my goal, which was amazing. Yeah. It was slow. It wasn't pretty, but I got it done. Um, and when I came back into the office the next week, my students, two of my students put, um, you never, ever gave up in post-it notes all over my office door. Exactly. And that um, meant the world to me. So this summer to me has been... Um, challenging. I mean, it's been challenging to people all over the planet for a large, large variety of reasons. But um, when I do start to feel discouraged about the slow pace of change, I just think to myself, never, ever give up. And and I know that that's not going to solve everything um, and it won't work for everyone. But for me, when, when I start to feel discouraged, I take a break, I step back and I go, all right, I, I'm back. I, I, I'm not going to give up, you know. So I know that that didn't exactly answer your question about procedural things. So, but. I, think, I think it's brilliant. Like, I think, I think that, you know, one of the things that will be of great use is as more and more programs that are better positioned to make progress, make progress. And they see like, you know, here's a department, you know, here's whatever, here's, here's, um, Pacific University really made great progress in this area, and Jackson State University made amazing progress in this area, and the new program at Rutgers is a model for this, blah, blah, blah. Um, that people will be able to look at individuals in those programs as, as uh, people like Marilyn will be able to look to people like Marilyn and say, well, she did it, and if she can do it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what, I, I certainly understand people who are overwhelmed but you know, miracles or things that are seemingly miraculous happen every day. So to wit, let's imagine two people who are both at the same depths of despair in drug and alcohol addiction. And um, for both of them, the path to recovery uh, is gonna be just as daunting. Um, one person can say exactly what, you know, the, the statements analogous to what you were saying, Aya, that somebody at, at a university might say like, it's just way too hard. I'm just too used to this life, whatever. So what if, so what if I die young, you know, I'm a fun person and I like to party. And the other person says, you know, sort of like in the Joan Gable email, no, this will not stand, right? We're going to have to find a way to live without the MPD because this will not stand. 
we're going to have to find a way to transform our department to be more uh, to be a non-toxic place for non-white and Latinx people because this will not stand. And sort of have a sense of mission and a sense of purpose and a sense of being sanguine with every step, with making progressive small, small steps towards progress, but with a goal in mind. You know, the, both, both are possible paths. And, you know, the, the, the most important part is just sort of saying, you know, no, we are, we are in an untenable position. I don't think that's very, a very hard realization to make in audiology and speech language pathology. The fact that in a country with the demographics that we have, that our professions are as overwhelmingly white and female as they are, that will be the death of our professions. Those professions will not be able to stay in their current form. This is not a matter of being nice. This is a matter, I mean, this is not a, a, merely a matter of justice, but it is a matter of justice. And if it were only a matter of justice, that would be enough. But in addition to being a matter of justice, it's a matter of a, the, the future of our professions. Can we, can, we be, can we be viable this way in a world that's mostly black and brown? <laughs> you know, in a world that has all the cultural and linguistic diversity that we have, right? Can we be this, this, white-centered? And the answer is, I don't think we can. And so, you know, once people make that realization and they have folks like Marilyn to look to as icons and inspirations, then it's just sort of a matter of like, okay, you know, today's Monday, tomorrow will be Tuesday, next month will be October, next year will be 2021, and I'm just going to go to work, nose to the grindstone, and I'm not going to let, you know, as my mom used to say when I was a kid, illegitimus non carborundum, don't let the bastards get you down. Right. Yeah, I actually, I really appreciate, um, Marilyn, what you mentioned of just never giving up. I, I know that it's easier said than done. <laughs> However, I think given the circumstances, if someone's telling you that this just isn't possible, but here you are, you have multiple universities that are catalysts, that are models for this change, then you can't refute that because here are the, the physical changes that we're seeing in admissions, in the process, in the departments, in the field itself. Here are the prospective students that we want to impact positively and to try to get them into this field. So I'm really hoping that for everyone that's listening that uh, feels discouraged um, or feels that there's not enough progress as quickly as we want it to be um, that we have to stay for the long haul. It's not just something that we can stay on a project for for three months and hope that we've accomplished mm -hmm. all our goals. Right. I mean, I, I am so impressed with how much you have all accomplished through SOS yeah. Color and all the people that just you've just brought to together that. from across the whole country virtually you know i yeah. mean i'm sure many people haven't even met in person but but look at the impact that you're i love those bios on instagram i love those yeah yeah and also i, I we have to keep our perspective and remember that it took us you know 600 years of oppression to get here so um actually i think we're making this summer i feel like we we have like a, a big jump in progress you know i and we have to keep that momentum going um you know uh so but but i i feel um 
tired, but also optimistic, you know? Yeah, you do inspire us. You really do. Thank you. It's well, y'all are the future of this field. Mm -hmm. It's seeing that it's graduated. Yeah, you know. Um, Karen, do you want to segue into talking about the um, the task force? Yes. So going back to the task force itself, what is the University of Minnesota's task force? What is it? What's its purpose and its mission? So you talked about how it. Be kind of started getting established pretty informally, a group, a six, group of six people coming together, sitting down and saying, hey, we need to make these changes. So what is the task force and what are you striving towards? Um, so Marilyn just strategically took a drink of water, so I'll take that one. Um, <laughs> so we have, um, right now it's an open call to whoever wants to be on it. So there were, there were sort of six members who were involved in writing the statement. Um, we had a subset of five of those people were involved in the admissions process. And so right now we're in the process of developing a policy and procedure document for that committee that would spell out um, what it's, you know, all of the more kind of banal things about committees, what its um, membership would be, what its terms would be, et cetera. But, you know, essentially what, we, what we're trying to do right now is not to dampen our enthusiasm for specific projects that arise with the um, bureaucratic minutia of formalizing the committee. And so, you know, one of my projects as chair is to have the committee structure in the department and the workload requirements of committee work to be more regularized and tracked more regularly. And so that's, you know, for even committees that have nothing to do with racial justice, like the scholarship committee, that's something that I'm working on in between the other things I'm working on as chair. Um, but right now, its, uh, its goal this year has been to reform admissions the next goal has been to develop structures for periodically assessing kind of the, the um, climate in the department and sort of doing a, a, using those kind of climate assessments to drive specific projects. So one of the things that you all helped us uh, advertise on the SLPs of Color Instagram page was um, a Google Doc that our um, current and past students could fill out uh, and talk about their experiences in the department anonymously. And that was very telling and very useful and, you know, painful to read, but not, you know, a hundred times more painful to experience by the, the people who experienced it. And, you know, it kind of, you know, for me as chair, there are some things that I think, oh, we need to do A, B, and C. Um, I, you know, there, so, so there, there are some things working behind the scenes there um, right now that are specifically in response to that climate assessment. The things like how can we better gather data from students who are currently in the program rather than waiting for students to leave and you know maybe students feel like there isn't a robust system in the department to gather student opinions that that assures that it will be truly anonymous and that it won't be associated with any um any retaliation um so that's so doing these regular climate assessments and coming up with kind of um projects that um emanate from those um, and then the other thing that we're doing in a, the mostly white department that we have is we're meeting monthly and, you know, we read Kendi's book for last month um, to do a kind of a, a reading or a self-assessment exercise that allows us to interrogate our practices and think about how we can change our own teaching and, um, and research and service activities in the department to you know, at least be more conscious of our, our um, practices so that we could, uh, so that we can, you know, self-monitor and self-correct the racist behavior that we're engaging in currently. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, you know, that one is, I think that one is that the discussion, the September discussion was very useful. Um, the October, I hope, will be um, just as useful. Uh, but as, as far as like sort of big, bold things, I think we're trying to, at this point, do a better assessment of what it is that needs to be done. So, you know, just to, to give you another um, kind of rehearsed bit of, of wording, you know, my best ideas up until this year were part of what got us in the situation we're in right now. So to be able to say that, you know, just because I, you know, had a realization this year and um, thanks to the, the work of, of BIPOC activists that suddenly I, you know, suddenly my best ideas are really good ideas, I don't think that's very prudent, that it really needs to be driven by um, the experiences of the, you know, the, the marginalized and oppressed people. And, um, and I'm also mindful of the fact that um, in, the, in, in the weeks following the Floyd murder, there was a lot of extra damage that was done by people's, by some people's very well-intentioned responses to it. So Lord knows if I had worked for ASHA, I might've thought a listening session was a good idea, but um, uh, what I heard from a lot of my BIPOC friends and colleagues in the field is that it was just re-traumatizing, that it was just sort of people going and talking about horrible things that had happened to them again, so reliving them. And I'm very mindful of sort of not saying, oh, I have this great idea, and then finding out one month later that it actually made more damage. I don't know, does that, is that, does that give you a flavor? I mean, so the answer is it's still pretty seat of the pants. Uh, and what we're trying to do right now is really get a better handle on where are the places where we can really make a difference and um, you know, what are the things that we can do more immediately and what are the things that really are gonna take longer and require more of a sort of mindset shift that's, that we're gonna where we're gonna have to work together over, you know, maybe we're gonna have to have um, meetings where we bring in external facilitators to help us do a, an assessment of the climate in the department and identify areas and practices that we can work on over a, a, a month's and year's timeframe rather than a days and weeks timeframe. Mm -hmm. So based off of what you discussed, it sounds more like the task force is not only targeting things for changes in graduate admissions, but oh, absolutely most, not. it's mostly, it's a lot of internal work, right? Yeah. Okay. So can you share some examples of what some of those immediate changes that you're making currently are, and then what some of your long-term, if you're able to share that? I know it's still early in the works. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as, Talking as department chair, I think one of the big things that's important for all of us is really decolonializing the curriculum. So, um, you know, I, I think we're very fortunate as a, in, in our department, we're very fortunate that we don't have people who are just saying like, well, I teach hearing science and science is never racist. Nobody, nobody makes any statements that are that patently ridiculous. Um, but if you think about something like phonetics, of course, that I teach, you know, everything we know about phonetics is based on white varieties of English, right? And so phonetics, though ostensibly uh, science and therefore objective course, is actually steeped in, in racism. And so one of the things that I'm doing as I look ahead to teaching phonetics in the spring, something I tried to do last spring, is really to sort of every time I talk about something, to stop back and say like, is this really a generalization that we can make about English or is this a generalization about a particular racialized variety of English, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think decolonializing the curriculum, um, really looking at the scholarship on racialized varieties of language and by BIPOC scholars 
maybe that isn't regarded as being in the canon of, of literature. So, you know, one of the things I've done is I've, you know, I've looked up old dissertations by people who, you know, are, are folks who maybe not, didn't stay in the field, but were, you know, really great dissertations on, you know, Black English back in the 60s that are, are both historically notable and also, you know, findings that deserve to be, um, to be discussed and which never, you know, the, which were made by people who, who, you know, sort of succumbed to the, to the toxic coal mine, so to speak. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's really kind of in the front of my mind, issues related to the curriculum. Then again, I'm a curriculum guy. If we had our clinical programs directors here, they might be able to say some things that are on their minds, but um, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I'm trying to do too is I, I work with our NISLA chapter and, and at the U of M it's all undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're hoping that the rising officers and I have been working and planning over the summer to try to introduce more discussions related to diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural humility, cultural responsiveness at the undergraduate level. And I mean, eventually I think I would love to do more work at the high school level and the middle school level and, you know, really get these conversations while also raising the profile of this field to students from a variety of backgrounds because people don't know what we do. Like, and our yeah. scope of practice is so broad that if they do know what we do, they know one thing. They say, oh, you work with people with stuttering or, oh, you work with kids with autism or you work, yeah. Um, so uh, swallowing is not usually up there right away mm -hmm. with the things that, that lay people assume we do, but we do that. So I think spreading the word about um, the field and setting up, um, supportive environments, mentorship programs, things like that, going all the way down to junior high, um, I think yeah. would, be, would be something that I would like to envision for the future. And, yeah, and I totally forgot that area. So our director of undergraduate studies, Yang Zhang, and a new assistant professor, Caitlin McGratton, have been working very hard to, um, Caitlin teaches the undergraduate um, uh, sort of the intro to speech pathology and audiology course, we call it communication differences and disorders. And she's worked very hard to include content that is more culturally diverse and more sort of culturally informed and to really be, you know, to reach out to the students of color in that class and, you know, get them early and retain them. And she's also starting to work with university um, agencies, university organizations to reach out to high school because, you know, Marilyn's right. There's a, I mean, there is a pipeline issue um, there's a pipeline issue and we want to make sure that, um, that students, students who didn't, you know, we, we want to, we want to be equally attractive to any student who finds us and not just immediately have a student come into our department and say, whoa, this does not look like a place where I belong. Um, I think something that we've all kind of learned since this summer and since this, um, time of heightened activism, which has been incredible, and heightened um, learning and working on being anti-racist and anti-biased is the important note of um, amplifying specific voices and knowing that, you know, knowing whose perspective 
knowing which perspective you can speak on and which perspective we can't. Um, And that's been something, you know, we've been learning in SLPs of color too, is um, recognizing that, you know, opinions or um, hardships that we discuss about specific groups need to come from that group um, because they're the ones who can speak to it the best and they have the uh, credibility to speak to it um, the best. So I'm curious to kind of hear about um, with this task force, are there, um, you know, are there people of color on it? Are there, is there a black person on it? Is there an indigenous person on it? Is there somebody who can um, speak to those issues that that affect that community um, in that task force for your department and for your students. Um, I'm asking generally, I don't know, University of Minnesota, I don't know what your like yeah. main ethnic um, group is, but that was also an issue that uh, came up a lot in even just in my uh, experience as a student is, you know, we're going to have this, you know, cultural diversity thing, but if there's no person of color on that, then it doesn't have the same impact as it does when there is somebody on there that you know has a voice and can speak to their own community so i think within our department we and in this in minnesota which is a you know a much wider state than the united states as a whole and in minneapolis which is you know a very racially segregated city and i think that that's been highlighted in in all of the reporting on the floyd murder um you know we we suffer from having a real lack of, of representation at the departmental level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, I think the, so the answer is no, it's an all white committee. And I think that leads us to, to two different things. Number one, that makes for a more natural focus in the committee on interrogating our own racism. Meaning that rather than, as a committee, rather than saying, okay, we're gonna read this book and develop this checklist for how to assess black people and how to assess Puerto Rican people and how to assess Dominican people. And you know, coming up and everybody learns the checklist from this book, which may, may or may not have been informed by Dominican people and Puerto Rican people and black people from Memphis and black people from Sacramento, blah, 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 is to say, okay, what are our practices that, have, that reflect the racism we didn't even realize we knew we had? And so I think we're very, cognizant of the fact that we are uh, an all-white task force and as such we're using we're we're recognizing that we are best positioned to work on our own racism rather than to teach other white people how to treat communities of color Mm -hmm. like we can more effectively say here are the things that we've done that we realize are kind of lousy and you know fellow white people here are things you can do to you know not not um, propagate that error to not, you know, to sort of not transmit that error. Um, I think we're also cognizant of the fact we do have um, Black and Asian faculty members and staff in the department. Um, I think we're cognizant of the fact that historically um, BIPOC people have been over recruited to activities like this and underappreciated and under honored when they've been in them. And so, you know, this is one of these, these cases where it's like, you know, we don't want to say, well, this particular faculty member needs to be on the committee because this particular faculty member is also a world-renowned scholar in this particular area who has ongoing research studies and ambitions there. And um, it's not, 
his or her responsibility to fix a problem that they didn't cause and in fact have been, you know, the victim of as well. Um, now, having said that, this is one of the big kind of pressure points moving forward. We do have a bilingual multicultural emphasis program. Um, it was founded by Catherine Conard, and it's now being um, had, it's it's now headed by her student Carrie Ebert, who um, so Ebert Conard and their colleague Yang Pham, who's at San Diego State, just co-authored a book on bilingual speech disorders, speech and language disorders, communication disorders, and you know I think. Carrie, who is white, um, you know, is very, was very clear when she presented it to the um, incoming master's in audiology students that, you know, one of the, the reasons to be in the, the BiMAP program is cultural humility. And so if you're thinking about a white-led program from, you know, in a department that has currently at least a lot of white students, um, that's an activity that is, that can be usefully accomplished in a, a white space that can make the world better for our BIPOC colleagues and students and clients. Um, it's also the case though that certainly starting when um, Kathy Conert ran it in the, the, the last decade in the aughts, um, that you know, this is one of these areas where as a, an engaged department, we're always reaching out to the community and trying to you know, find the people in the community who can speak to these issues. And I think you know, we can be proud as a department that um, a lot of the SLPs of color in the local Twin Cities community are people who came through our department, and a lot of them were people who were, were mentored very closely um, by Kathy Conard herself and, you know, sort of carry the legacy of that program. So I think we've done a, a good job of maintaining ties that way. Um, I also think we as a field, um, so in, in terms of the issue of um, the sort of the, the extreme lack of diversity in the PhD level um, cohort in our field, I think one of the things that has really disadvantaged us as a field is this idea that to be a professor in a communication disorders department, you have to be a clinician. Mm -hmm. So like if you go to schools of education, you know, schools of education have people who come from anthropology and sociology and linguistics. And, you know, you don't have to be an educator to be in a, in a school of education. And in fact, a lot of education schools see their strength as being a kind of interdisciplinary hub. Um, our sense as a, as a field that we really need to just have professors who can train people to be clinicians because they've been clinicians themselves, that's just propagating the same um, discrepancies, the same homogeneity that we have in the field. And so, you know, one of the questions I have is why aren't our departments reaching out more to people who are in, you know, getting PhDs in education in, you know, culturally um, responsive pedagogy uh, who could come into our field and and really make a mark for themselves because they'd be a pioneer in that area and yeah they wouldn't be able to teach the graduate fluency course they wouldn't be able to teach odd assessment one but so what um you know we will get those courses covered somehow and the bigger issue here is you know can we can we can we break through the 93 percent or 92 percent barrier that way Right. So that's the that's the answer is, you know, it's an all white task force in a mostly white department. And that's not something to crow about. But the fact that we're working with it and thinking about it gives I would hope would give hope to other departments that are similarly configured. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the point you brought up about the community is a really huge one is that, you know, even if your immediate department or your immediate university is homogenous, hopefully the community, the surrounding community around you isn't, and you can always reach out. And even if your surrounding community is like, we are, 
luck, we have the privilege of being in this huge technology um, generation. And I think this pandemic has really let that shine, you know, as, as, as troublesome as it has been on one end, um, it has really shown how easy it is to communicate with others that are not in your immediate circle, yeah. not easily accessible to you um, in person. Um, so I think having that emphasis of, you know, even if we are an all white task force and our department is mostly white, the overall community isn't, and we can lean on them in those areas that we need to in terms of hearing their perspective and using their perspective to guide um, you know, how we make our anti-racist initiatives. Um, yeah. yeah, those are all really valuable perspectives. Um, and that was something that I was actually wanting for myself was um, out of the task force, were there any people of color? And then, but then come again, it makes sense when you're in a specifically pretty predominantly white state and then the city that you're in, but also thinking about the educational level, it's higher education, not only that, then it goes into a graduate yeah. admissions and then PhD. So, right, like Ben, you mentioned, there's not many people of color that are pursuing their PhDs or if they've, they've already left the field and pursued something else because maybe this field was too toxic or something that they weren't passionate enough into anymore. But I think lately we've, and I say this generally as a, a weave, just talking about society, we focus so much on we want something to be anti-racist, anti-bias, but how do we do that if there aren't people of color? So mm -hmm. again, if we don't have that infrastructure already established or the people that are applying for these positions, like I want to go to a graduate school that has is reflected with people of color being the faculty. But how many positions are available? Who are the people that are applying to those programs? Who's willing to relocate to these locations to teach and to um, supervise these students? And I think when we think about that, I mean, um, there are still a lot of barriers to creating these, these task force and trying to implement, like you have to have that the quota of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that maybe then we can take advantage of this technology platform that you were mentioning, Aya, and reach out to each other interdisciplinarily um, across programs, across geographic regions, and, and maybe do advocacy work together you know, if, if there aren't enough faculty of color, but maybe maybe there are one or two people there that are really interested in doing advocacy work, and then maybe we can connect them with people in Chicago. Um, you know, yeah, maybe that's one solution. Yeah. I also think it's important when you think about um, the community to not just think about the community of practitioners, but to think about the communities that we serve, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, let's take, you know, let's take a university that does have a speech language pathology program, you know, maybe for students in that program and for that, maybe for that program itself, the first step that it takes to decolonializing its curriculum is to talk to people in the local community whose, whose family members um, are getting services or who themselves are getting services and you know look at the the the, the white and the non-white people in that population and see what are the discrepancies in the way they're receiving services in the way they view our professions in you know their perception of how their needs are being met or not met by our professions that alone can be um 
that you know that's a way to capitalize on the local community in a way that could really improve the profession. It's also an example of how of something that, if done poorly, could be sort of exploitative, right? So it's also a, a reminder that whenever we're engaging, whenever white people are engaging with um, with marginalized communities, that you know the the first do no harm principle needs to be operational. Yeah, yeah. The the work that we've done with the engaged department team um, included a lot of trainings, and I think you know how I I hung on to that Diane uh, Diane Nyad saying there was something that Andy Furco um, in one of the trainings he talked about how to be truly engaged you need to be working with communities not in communities, not for communities, and not doing things to oh. communities, but working with them. And that involves a lot of trust building and reciprocity. Um, and uh, it takes, it takes time. I mean, you know, so, and, and it takes honesty and truth and vulnerability and putting aside, putting the time into it, putting aside the, um, sort of ivory tower kind of notions and really being active listeners and um, engaging folks in a way that is reciprocally helpful. Mm -hmm. So do you know who I'm talking about, Ben? Did you look at Yeah, up? he's in OLPD, Organizational oh. Leadership Policy and Development. But anyway, that, that um, working with as opposed to in for or to has been um, something that I've really tried to keep in the front of my mind whenever I'm um, considering, you know, some sort of engagement related project with a, with a local community. I think that was something that I really appreciated about the statement that you guys put out. I think it was one of the earlier and first examples I've seen of a university really providing sincere acknowledgement of and putting themselves in a vulnerable position by being um, sincere in their acknowledgement of their own wrongdoing. Because I think oftentimes what happens is that the conversation comes across as, well, as white people, we need to be the listeners and we need to, you know, let the people of mm -hmm. color and the black and indigenous people do the talking because this is their space, which is 100% true. But you need to also look beyond that and recognize that these conversations are extremely hard. And it's even harder when I'm the only one putting yeah. myself out there and, and being vulnerable and, uh, and talking about these hardships. If all you're doing is listening, then you didn't, it's not an equal um, give and take, you know, I gave way more than you did in that circumstance, yeah. which which is hurtful. Yeah. I think um, for there, like in, in this general space, one of the things that's been a, an important mind shift for me is to not say, I'm going to lift up the voices of people, but to say, I'm going to cede the floor, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, literally in this interview, I'm taking way too much of the floor, right? And as white men in general have taken the floor way too often. And the job here isn't for me to lift up Marilyn's voice as a white woman, or Aya and Karen as, as women of color, my job is to shut up, right? I've already, I already have a disproportionate share of everything. I don't need to lift other people up. I need to cede that. Mm -hmm. It's not my, it's not, I don't have the right to lift other people up, right? I have, I have more than I should have, period. End of story. Get over it. 
I've yeah, taught myself a, to get over it. <laughs> that's a really interesting way to word it. I don't think I've ever uh, heard it phrased like that before. I think you're right. It, maybe it's not necessarily a right because then that dictates that power differential yeah. of who's giving you that right. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. The other thing for me is that um, I I learned this again when I was exploring um, how to provide gender-affirming voice and communication services, that I have to do my own homework. So, um, so this, you know, um, this summer I've been really trying to do my own independent reading and listening to, you know, public figures. So thank goodness for Kendi, right? Kendi has literally published books that he wants me to, to, you know, listen to what he has to say, you know? So, um, and when I, when I support him by buying that book, um, I'm, I'm educating myself. I'm not putting the burden on somebody else to do the labor, you know, and I'm also, giving some compensation to the community um and so yeah that's uh, yeah that's a lesson that i've also learned from my children too <laughs> they they tell me that a lot so um you want me to do this this thing you want me to participate in this advocacy work um how are you going to compensate me for my time you know um because i also am a student and i have all these other things that i need to do you know um so, yeah. So just trying to do my own homework, do my own work, and compensate people when they, when they help me out, you know. Mm -hmm. So you both have shared a lot of valuable information and, and advice for, for us about how you've come to establish this task force, what it looks like, where you want to go with it, um, what you're currently doing to to make changes in your department uh, and in, in your clinical practices. So what advice would you give to programs that are start also trying to start something like this? I think it's really important to get some stakeholders. Uh, I think it's, it's important to... Um, have stakeholders who are in a position to help you enact change. Uh, and I, I've learned two things from my work with our state association. Um, one is, so we've been doing legislative advocacy for um, licensure efforts for speech language pathology assistance for a number of years now. And I have been um, at times very discouraged by the glacial pace of um, legislative change. Um, so that's the first thing that I learned is that that change is so slow, but that you can you just have to keep going um, and you have to engage with stakeholders who um, have a vested interest in in helping you or at least understanding where you're coming from. Um, and then the other thing that I've learned, the second thing that I've learned is that um, it helps to have some sort of shared vision or mission or something, some sort of project. So, um, you know, to, to kind of micro describe this, um, there is a committee in our state association that's been focused on issues pertaining to 
um, multicultural affairs for over 20 years. And I've been active in that committee since it first formed. And um, I chaired it for a couple of years and, and I've worked on a lot of projects with the committee. And what I've noticed is that when we have some sort of shared focus, some sort of mission or project, then the momentum keeps going and um, people are active, they're engaged, they come to the meetings, um, you know, on top of working full time during the day, you know, um, because they have this, this goal. So I think um, it's kind of like an IEP. You got to have your, your long-term goals, but also your short-term objectives. That's what I was going to say. So, yeah. So, so if you, you know, if the yeah. short-term objectives are those little projects that you put together and sometimes yeah. they're not so little, sometimes they get really big. Um, but, um, but that keeps people's uh, feet on the ground and that keeps them yeah. moving forward. But you got to have the long-term ones too, That's because right. it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so, you know, you don't want people to, I mean, because we don't know when this is going to end. We don't know how long it's going to take, right? And maybe not in our lifetime, probably not in our lifetime. But we want people motivated by the successes that happen with the the meeting the behavioral objectives, but never to forget what the the goals are, right? that the goal is the obliteration of racism, right? The goal is racial justice. The goal is the obliteration of transphobia, the, the obliteration of sexism, right? Um, and the objectives are, you know, the objectives serve the goal, but we sort of have to be all in with the goal, right? We have to be all in with the goal and know that we'll meet the goal by systematically working through the objectives and that the, the progress will be nonlinear you know, it'll be like my PT progress where, you know, just one day, a couple of days ago, my left leg finally was at a point where it was, it was hyperextended to the point where I could walk again. And it was like, wouldn't have gotten there if I hadn't had six weeks of arduous exercises, but finally I did. And now I probably won't make a big, you know, change like I won't make another big goal, like a, a big perceived shift for a long time but that we still have the you know behavioral objectives daily squats you know step ups with progressively more step up lunges I, yeah my least yeah it, as it turns out i approach almost every goal in my life with my slp lens um but then i also approach my slp work with those those um, types of perspectives from the rest of my life, like my orthopedic life, and yeah. and yeah, so at the end we come at it holistically, which is yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh, I think holistic is the perfect word. I mean, I just think that when when I'm working with my clients, I always try to keep that in mind. So even though I'm trying to identify what their area of communication challenge is and break it into manageable pieces mm -hmm. for them so that we can work together and they can meet those objectives to meet that long-term goal. I never ever want to lose sight that I'm dealing with a whole person and every day they're coming in in a different state of mind having had a different set of circumstances that deposited them in my therapy room at that moment. Um, and, and I have also, so it's dynamic. Literally every time we come together, we've got two whole people, or in my case, because I'm working with students, usually three, 
this semester four, um, <laughs> people coming together with all of their cumulative experiences. Um, I just think it's really important to keep that in mind because Ben's right, it's not going to be linear progress. It's, it's up and down and all around, you know, but, um, but we just exercise patience and never ever give up, you know. Well, I think we want to be respectful towards your time because it has, I know we've, you've already taken yeah. of it, but these conversations, I swear, They're you just great. don't realize that the time has passed. Um, and They're great too. Add parts I to was it. never, I was never bored. <laughs> no. Well, thank you. And um, we really, really want to thank you for your time and for the perspective that you've shared. Um, I think it just really shed so much light on the process of how you guys got started and what you're in uh, the vision that you have for the future at your university that I think and hope will inspire other universities to not only see that you know it's possible but to understand how impactful and important it is for the students that belong to that university and the community as a whole. Thank yeah you. thank you. We're all learning um, and we're all going to continue to learn because like we were like we were saying in this whole conversation, this is not, you know, there is no end journey in sight. This is going to be for the rest of your life. You will have to be anti-racist and anti-biased and check yourself and hold yourself accountable for the rest of your life. It's gonna, you know, it should feel like, um, you know, it should be as natural to you as everything else that you normally do is. Right, that's a good point. We are what we repeatedly do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for, for being on our interview series. We re really appreciate your time and to be able to sit with us and discuss everything that U of M and your personal journeys into speech pathology has provided um, up until this point. And we thank you in advance for the very hard editing job that we've given you <laughs> by being so loquacious. <laughs> yeah, of course. Absolutely. It's... It's a long process, but um, it's good to be able to, to find an outlet to share this kind of information, um, yeah. to be as honest, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be articulate, but this is just sharing honest opinions, experiences, thoughts, and the processes behind it all. It's not just one structural, structural uh, organization that has all of these checklists of how can I accomplish this and do this. It's meant to be messy. There isn't any kind of model to start this up with. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, yes, thank course. you very it's much. An, it is an honor and a privilege. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for, you know, being that voice that's bringing SLPs together uh, all across the nation. That's, that's so powerful. Thank you. Well, the whole community comes together. It's not us. We just, we hope just try to push it up. Shout out to Ben and Marilyn for sharing their experiences on the SLPs of Color podcast. We hope you learn a lot from this episode. If you don't already follow us, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts at SLPS of Color. Make sure to follow, subscribe, give us a rating, and leave a review so others can find us. You can also leave us a voice message with feedback for this episode at 510-255-5620. See you next time.